0: For those of you that aren't aware and you weren't following on Instagram and all the other ways, that uh, you can kind of track what's going on. Um, Saturday morning, Connie and I were in El Salvador and we were at a pastor's conference getting ready to teach about six o'clock in the morning. And I got a text from my brother-in-law and my, my sister went home to be with Jesus. And so I get to live out what I'm teaching you tonight, because none of us are immune to those things that we don't understand. We don't get God's timing. We don't know why He allows uh, little sisters to to go home while you still have aged parents who are alive. We don't know why the Lord sends you off to El Salvador when you'd rather be available for your family in Georgia. And so, we all are in this together, amen? And we all need to be what Paul describes here, what I would call a clay pot of courage. In order to live out your life as God intends while you're here, you are going to have to be courageous. Courageous. You're going to go through things in life that are going to be very painful. You're going to go through things that you feel are not deserved or maybe ill-timed. Without Jesus, I, I believe that life is virtually impossible. But with him, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Amen? And so I speak to you from a a place of a little bit of personal pain. But as scripture says, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We sorrow in hope. I I know where my sister is. She's telling Jesus how to paint the mansion in heaven. Because that's the kind of sister she was while she was here. But she's still my sister. And I plan on having a reunion with her when we all get there. Amen? We need to be clay pots of courage. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we can cast our cares upon you, for you care for us. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of suffering. Lord of pain, of going through things in this life that only prove that you are real and everything else isn't. And so, Lord, we commit our time in your word to you and pray that you'd speak to us. Lord of majesty, King of heaven, shower upon us good gifts tonight by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 1. And therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. And this world is filled with things that can make you want to lose heart. Amen? You know, I, I've gotten to the place where I almost don't read the news anymore. Because there's almost no good news, it's all bad news. There, There are things... That, that make you lose heart. There are things that go on in our lives, the lives of others, our, our nation, this world. Uh, as Connie and I spent our last day in El Salvador, we're, we're ministering to the the literally the poorest of the poor that exist on this earth. Uh, it, it is the type of poverty that when you see it, it's overwhelming. When you experience it, there's no explanation for it. That the change that each of you has in your pockets is far greater uh, than that which is earned by them for a day's wages. Existing on things like collecting fruit from trees that are just growing naturally and trying to sell it on the side of the road to make a few pennies so maybe you can exchange that for a little bit of rice. There are things in this life that can make you lose heart. We need to be courageous in this world because the world is watching us to see exactly how we are going to live our lives. And if my life as I profess Christ is not different than someone who does not profess Christ, then I'm losing perhaps the greatest way that I can show them how good my God is. He's good. His mercy endures forever. Verse 2 says, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame. We don't live like the world lives. We don't walk the way the world walks. Our lives are to be different than this world. People should be able to tell by watching you. Who is your king? Who is your Lord? Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, This is not a book to be toyed with for one's own personal gain. This is truth to be taught for the king and for the kingdom. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, Can you say tonight that your life is a manifestation of the truth that when someone else sees it, that they are going to commend God for it? Can people tell who is your king by the way you live in his kingdom? Are you that clay pot? that's filled with courage? Or are you, as is described here, someone who has not renounced the world, someone who's walking in crookedness or craftiness? The idea of the Greek word behind the English word craftiness is unscrupulous conduct. It means that you actually know the truth, but you're twisting it for your own end. Jesus actually spoke of the same word when he was talking to the chief priests, the scribes, when they asked him a question. And they were trying to trap him, and they asked him the question, should he pay tribute to Caesar? And Luke records that he perceived their craftiness. In other words, they were trying to take the word and twist it for their own particular end and gain. We are to disown the twisting of Scripture. I've listened to people time and time again use the Bible for their own ill-gotten gains, to sell books, to coerce people to give, and look, I'm just going to call it like I see it, and I see it this way. When you amass a $500 million fortune, From teaching the word of God, there is something seriously wrong with people like Kenneth Copeland. There is something seriously wrong when Joel Osteen can drive a Ferrari and live in a $13 million mansion and have another house that's worth $5 million on a lake in North Texas. There is something wrong when you twist the scriptures to make yourself exactly what Paul wrote to Timothy. We should not be as pastors. We've been called to be temperate and moderate in all things and not a lover of money. Why do I say that? Because people are fooled by these guys into believing that if you just ask God for a Ferrari, you're going to get it. And if you don't get one, then you don't have enough faith. Let me square something up with you. Then the Apostle Paul was a faithless fool because he owned nothing, possessed nothing in his pocket, and he was murdered. We cannot go on promoting the twisting of scripture for personal gain. We stand in the truth. Why would someone believe what I teach about the truth of God's word when my life belies the truth that I teach? And if I cannot believe what Paul writes to Timothy, then why should I believe what Jesus said to the disciples? They're both contained in the same Bible. They're both spoken of with the same reverence by the Lord himself. Jesus, James, Paul agree on so many things. we have to be people of truth because the enemy is at work in this world using his corrosive character, his demonic ways, his ingenious lies and schemes. And as Connie were ministering to these people in El Salvador, I'm thinking of what could be done with the money, the 50 million dollars that a man like Creflo Dollar is asking for a new private jet for how many hundreds of thousands of people's needs could be met with that money we need to be people of the truth and truth about everything all the time There's an example in Scripture of a man who, I think we all know, his name is Peter. Who actually got caught up himself in not telling the truth. In being a bit of a deceiver. And it began actually with good intention as Jesus is arrested in the garden. And it ends with very bad intention as he's sitting around a campfire swearing at a little girl. We are people of the truth. We cannot handle the word deceitfully. The word of God is straightforward, and we need to keep it straightforward. We should be able to be trusted with the word of God as the people of God. It keeps us on the straight and narrow, amen? I was sharing with the people in El Salvador as I literally had three hours between when I found out that my sister had gone home to be with the Lord and I needed to be in a pulpit. And yes, I cried. But I also believe that God doesn't make mistakes. You see, my Bible teaches a sovereign God sits in heaven and that he is appointed into man one time to die and then judgment. You see, my, my flesh was saying, "We'll just go home. Everybody will understand. But the Spirit was saying, no better time like now than to live it. We have to live what we believe. We have to live it. And if we don't live it, I'm not sure that we can actually say that we really believe it. These clay pots of ours contain the most precious treasure in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, the grace that has saved you and me. Verse 3, notice this. But even if our gospel is veiled, in other words, there's a blanket been pulled over it. It's not actually visible. It's veiled only to those who are perishing. You see, the gospel is so simple, it's quite attractive to people who are actually looking. But a lot of people don't want the simplicity of the gospel. They want religion. They, they want to deceitfully handle the word of God for some other gain, some other reason. Maybe it's riches, maybe it's power, maybe it's the very same things that people look for in, in the world itself. whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. Why? Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. You see, it's not that people can't see the gospel. It's not that it isn't visible. It's not that it isn't simple. The plain fact of the matter is people love darkness. They're unwilling to come out of the darkness and into the marvelous light because they love darkness. That's why it's so important that we be people of the light. Otherwise, there's no difference between the church and the world. We allow the enemy then to reside in the middle of the church. For we do not preach ourselves. Look, I'm not preaching the gospel of Calvary Chapel, I'm not preaching the gospel of Jeff Gill. I'm not preaching the gospel of an organization or an affiliation. I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one gospel. There's only one Savior. There's only one Lord. And him alone do we preach. And ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We've given up the rights to our own lives and said, yes to Jesus, here I am, send me. This incredible passage, that talks about who we are in Christ. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure In earthen vessels, that the excellence of power may be of God and not of us. Look, I can tell you, my clay pot tonight is broken, my earthen vessel is leaking, it got hit. But what's inside of it absolutely still remains. This earthen vessel is not my power. It's not my knowledge. It's not my learning. It isn't my decades of study. It's none of those things. The power that rests in us is the power of the good news of the gospel by the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit that brings people to the place that they can understand and receive Christ as Lord and be saved. It's a very simple message. It can be presented in an awful lot of ways. In every... Tribe, every tongue, every nation. Paul begins by expressing to us the enemies of the gospel. You, you see, the problem is not the gospel itself. It's very interesting to me how simple the gospel actually is. And there are a lot of books you can read entire volumes on the gospel. But the gospel itself is that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into this world that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And his own son came to this earth, died on Calvary's cross. He was buried in the grave. He was raised three days later by the power of God. And then he ascended into heaven Where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. That same Jesus is the gospel. That's it in a nutshell. We cannot complicate the gospel. The good news needs to remain the good news, it needs to stay on the low hanging branches. Because people are not going to get sanctified, they're not going to get glorified, they're not going to be justified until they receive the gospel. And sometimes we put the gospel above sanctification, we put the gospel above justification, we put the gospel above maturation. We tell people what they have to do and what they need to be before they've even gotten saved. Can I give you a little secret? Sinners sin. People who don't know Jesus do all kinds of crazy stuff. They are covered with dirt. They need the gospel. And we need to live lives that are so clearly gospel-oriented that people go, oh, that's what it can do. You mean you were once like, yep, sure was. And God cleaned me up by his power. Paul's just made that claim that he's preaching the simple gospel truth. Now it's true, blind people can be desperate to see. But as C.S. Lewis said, there are none so blind as those who will not see. You see, some people simply choose to not see. Now, now I want to tell you I don't know how many mathematicians we have here tonight. If you are one, then you're probably well ahead of the rest of us, but most of us, you know, you get into school and you take basic mathematics and then you go to algebra and then algebra two and then geometry and trigonometry and then maybe calculus and then you make it to the dreaded subject of differential equations. And for those of you who have never looked at a differential equation, it's like, just imagine nonsense and numbers combined. Because <laughs> when I look at a differential equation, it's like, mm don't know what that is, but I can't do it. You see, the fact that I don't understand a differential equation doesn't mean that one solved is not true. The fact that I don't understand mathematics comes from the standpoint that at the beginning I didn't start with basic math. I didn't move on to algebra and algebra 2 and to geometry and trigonometry. And then, you know, all of the rest of the mathematical disciplines, including calculus and differential equations, those types of things. You see, me not knowing it often directly depends on whether I ever desired to know it. Because math can simply be studied. It is a truth. When you begin with 2 plus 2 equals 4, it grows from there. You you see, a lot of people in this world are waiting for you to explain to them the gospel. 2 plus 2 is 4. They don't need the differential equation of sanctification and maturation and justification. They need the gospel. Are you living a gospel life? Because your clay pot contains that treasure, the gospel treasure. And yes, the rest of it is valuable to God too. But the most important thing that you can do is live out the gospel. There are a lot of people that look at the Bible as a closed book. And the reason they do that is because of the lives that they see of people who profess to be Christians but don't do a single thing the Bible says. And so they discount the gospel because they see people living As Christians, supposedly living just like people who do not know the Lord. And so they go, that can't be true. They're not that dumb. They go, if you're saying you're a Christian and you're still walking in the exact same sins that I struggle with, if you're claiming to be a a pastor and you're also claiming to be same-sex attracted, you might as well just tell people the gospel is insufficient that it can't change your life, that there's no power in it. And so why do you think people are looking to Darwinian evolution? Why do you think they want to know that life can happen by random chance processes over billions of years? Because at that is the root of atheism. You don't need God. So why do you think they gravitate towards things where you don't need God? Because a lot of the church isn't living gospel lives. They're not saying, Lord, let me be a beacon, let me be a light, let me shine for you. They're saying, Lord, bless my mess, and I know I'm dirty, but eh, who cares? Why do you think people cling to psychoanalysis or or some type of psychology and trying to figure everything out, why should we not all be existentialists? Why why shouldn't we just be running around in moral relativism? If the church doesn't stand in the truth, then that's a valid thing for people to gravitate towards. If we're wandering around speaking psychobabble to people, well, you know, yeah, go ahead and divorce your husband. After all, he's a jerk. God wants you to be happy. Instead of saying, you know what, God hates divorce. And he wants you to do everything to reconcile your marriage. And until you've tried everything, please don't quit. Because God will give you the strength and the power to endure. He will help you through this time of trial. But instead, oh man, yeah, I'd I dump him too. when our marriages don't last any longer than people who don't have Jesus, why do you think people think? What's the sense in being a Christian? They just go, well, it's all about psychology. They were just incompatible. They had irreconcilable differences. Let me give you a little clue. Irreconcilable differences can be defined this way, a man and a woman. That's an irreconcilable difference right there. Because you ladies don't see things like us guys and we don't see things like, and I can prove this to you. Put 10 women in a circle, give them any subject, they're going to be there for three days. <laughs> Talking about the subtle intricacies of why there's dust in the corner of their car. You put 10 guys in a circle, give them the same thing, they're going to look at each other, when do we eat? it's irreconcilable differences amen so people gravitate towards that which is of the natural world which is controlled this passage says by the wicked one so we play into the enemy's hands when we don't live like christians in this post-christian world some people are hoping and supposed science that we'll just somehow figure it all out. We'll figure out a way to make everybody happy. We'll give them enough drugs. We'll give them enough food. We'll just we'll be socialists or whatever. And others are into government. There's just a chillion things that we could talk about tonight where people are looking for the truth, but we're offering them the same thing the world's offering them. We have to be different. We have to share the truth of the gospel. The truth is, God, it says here, the God of this world has blinded their minds so that they would not believe. We can't help the enemy blind people. We have to tell them the truth. Truth is, Satan hates the truth that's in you in these clay pots of ours. He hates it because he knows it's true. You know that the demons actually know who Jesus is and they tremble. So you can imagine, Satan's not fooled. He knows that Jesus is Lord. But it hasn't caused him to give up. And so the chief way he works in this world is false religion. And in that false religion is nothing but lies. Do you know that we believe in the one and only Savior? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one, not anyone, there is not anybody, nobody else can come. There's no other way that anyone can get to heaven except through him. And yet I listen to Christians who talk all day long about, well, you know, Allah and Yahweh are the same guy. You know, I just think Hindus just have to sort through a few things. No, they're lost. They're perishing. They're dying without Christ. And to sit around and tell them they're okay is mind-boggling to me because they've already believed a lie. That's why they're following after those things. And so when we help the devil... By saying, you know, Mormons are Christians too. We are helping the enemy perpetrate lies on mankind. As I said, Joseph Smith was a shiftless drifter that came out of the Methodist church that discovered some golden plates, supposedly, in a Reformed Egyptian that never existed. And then kind of translates them into pseudo King James in the 1830s and develops a new religion that, oh, by the way, is almost completely geared towards men's sexual pleasure. And in it, you can become your own God. I think that's actually what Hollywood basically teaches, isn't it? Am I wrong? Pretty much what Islam teaches, isn't it? You notice how the women don't get 70 male virgins in heaven. It's just the dudes. It's like it's a lie from the pit of hell. And yet Christians are going, well, you know. And and look, I completely agree that we need to find ways to dialogue with people with whom we disagree, but you can't back off the truth. The truth is they're lost. The truth is they're believing a lie. The truth is we need to show them the light. Hindus worship countless gods. Again, it's male centric. It offers no hope for you ladies. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going, okay. So why would anyone who's a woman want to be a Mormon, a Muslim, or a Hindu? Just tell them the gospel. In the beginning, God created them equal. Jesus said, I'm going to set them free. Paul goes on and said, there's no Greek, no Jew, no Jew. No, Roman, there's not even male or female in God's kingdom. There's just one gospel. And so the list just goes on and on and on and on. And what it is is people trying to fill the emptiness inside of their soul with a billion different things that can never satisfy. And Satan hates the truth of the gospel. That's why when you tell people about Jesus, you're probably going to get a few responses like, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> you're a Jesus freak. <laughs> yeah? Because Jesus loves you, and he came to this earth to die for you so that you could have eternal life. Not, well, you know, I, I don't want to bum you out. I actually listened to a conversation very similar to that a couple of weeks ago. Well, you know, I don't really, you know, I, I, I know, but, you know, there, there's probably other ways to heaven. Yikes! It's like, wait, 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 he's wrong. He's preaching the gospel that's the image of Christ. That's his clay pots. We have a master and we have a message, amen? We have a master. You have a master. Notice what he says here in in the first part of verse 5. We preach not ourselves, but the Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ the Lord. And that's not his first, last, and middle name. That's Jesus, God's own son. That's Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. That's Lord, that's master. Describes the totality of the gospel in three words. Jesus, Christ, Lord. You you see, a few minutes with your Bible concordance, if you're just sitting there, you you realize we're we're being beat on by three basic enemies in this world, according to Ephesians chapter 2. The world's against us, that's for sure. Our own flesh is against us, you know that, right? That's why temptation works, in case you didn't notice. Any of you here are temptation-free? Let us know what you took to get there. Whatever it was. No, we, we all have temptation. It's because your flesh and then there's the all-dreaded you, the devil. These three things, your own flesh, this world, and the devil. It's interesting, when you read Scripture, you're going to find that God the Father is actually the one that opposes this world. He's the one that's powerful enough to do that. He, he can stand against the world system. He primarily gave the job of opposing uh, your flesh to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in you that enables you to flee temptation, resist the devil. And then Jesus himself is actually opposing the devil himself. And so God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, all involved in helping you with this message and making sure that you have the right master. Paul says, look, we we have a master. He actually even says, I'm actually a bond slave. A, a dulosa is the word that's used there in the in the Greek. It comes from a douloi. Paul uses it very frequently. It just means a bond slave. Somebody who says, Look, I have voluntarily give myself to you. I'm I'm forfeiting all of my rights. You can do anything you want with my life. Actually, I'm dead to myself and alive to you. Look, you see, what happens is is the message is the same for everyone. There's not a different message of the gospel. And when you you think about Christianity in that way, that's why the one message has been placed inside of every clay pot. Because it works for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. In the Bible, there are really three basic groups of people in the New Testament that, that God is principally dealing with. And you can look at them this way. There were the Greeks, right? What was the Greeks' basic thing that they were all about? It was knowledge. The Greeks sought after knowledge and understanding. And they gravitate, gravitated towards anything that set them apart. That that was the that was the greatest thing. That's why they excelled at art they excelled at architecture mathematics drama philosophy all these things the greeks sought after knowledge even in our highest institutions of learning what do you have for the fraternities there are greek systems amen there's this there's this gravitation Towards knowledge. People still gravitate towards knowledge. They want to have the inside track. They want to have that knowledge. And yet when they went to talk about God, what did they do? They exalted knowledge above God. And so they made their gods exactly like them. And so if you went to Mount Olympus, you found basically really powerful people. You'd find Zeus. Zeus. You'd find Neptune. You'd find the the God, Jove, who is the pagan thunderer. Who's going to need to repent to somebody who just thunders all day long? Who's going to have to worry about Aphrodite, you know, worrying about your sexual sin? She infuses sexual sin into the world. So they just made gods just like them. They took their knowledge and translated it and said, we want God to be like us. The Romans their chief problem was they sought after glory. Everything the Romans did they did in a big way. Amen. You can still see they actually found a new underground room underneath the Colosseum just today. They're still finding stuff that the Romans built. Gold-gilded, covered with all kinds of art. And it's been below the streets of Rome for 2,000 years. The Romans built everything extraordinarily. When you travel to Israel and you see the Roman aqueduct that comes down from Mount Carmel and travels along the coast some 18 miles to provide water for a swimming pool. You go. This is dedicated to Caesar Tiberius. It was about glory. You travel to Rome today, you can go see Hadrian's tower. It's 136 feet tall. It's cylindrical in its storytelling. It has over 200 images on it of the battles and the wars and everything that Hadrian did. So when someone came into Rome, booyah, we are awesome. We're greater than everybody else the Roman road system built for that purpose. You know that the Romans invented curbs and gutters? They actually put an outside curb filled in the interior. That was to keep the chariots from going off the edge of the road. So when you were on a road with curbs and gutters, you could go, Romans? They were after glory. Can I tell you, mankind is still after glory and I'm not knocking anybody who has a sports addiction in the room tonight, but you think we're still kinda looking for glory? We pay baseball players $300 million contracts. Why? Glory! We're still after glory. And that glory gets in the way of us finding God sometimes, doesn't it? And last of all, there's the Christians. The Christians were the laughingstock of the ancient world. They were crucified by the millions. Tortured. Nero had a wonderful practice of putting them on pike poles putting them in his garden, wrapping them in animal skins, dipping them in tallow, and using them for human candles while they burned alive. The Christians were laughing socks. Why? Because they were supposed to do good to their enemies. They were supposed to be kind to people who disagreed with them. They were so different that people looked at that meekness and thought it was weakness. And every last one of them that died is an awaiting army in heaven that's going to come back with the Lord at the second coming and defeat Satan to his face. Amen? It's like you may have thought you won. You see, the world looks at Christians and goes, Why would I want to be like that? They don't park day. They're all about being meek and humble. And I want knowledge and power. You see, the simplicity of the gospel reaches into every heart. that's why when you look at this, you can kind of see how God works all this out. He puts this treasure in, in, in clay pots that can be broken and fractured. It's an interesting parallel to the life of Gideon. You remember the story. He goes to the, to the springs and he starts out thousands of men and he gets down to finally 300 and God says, yeah, go attack the Midianites and the Amalekites and you're, you're gonna defeat them, don't worry about it. And he gives them this crazy thing to do. He says, I don't want you to really go with swords. I want you to go with clay pots and torches. Do you remember what they did? They put the torch inside of the clay pot. They had no weapons that we aware of. And they go to the encampment of the Midianites. And they go rushing in. And they go, the sword of the Lord and Gideon... And then what do they do to the clay pots? They break them. What comes out? The light. What happens? The Midianites, the Amalekites, kill themselves. That's the power that's in you. But those pots have to be broken sometimes in order for the light to get out. We have this Treasure in earthen vessels, in dirt jars, in, in mud men, in, in dust dudes and dudettes, amen? We're like, we're made from the dust of the earth. We're nothing special, but what's in us is really special. It's the stuff of heaven. That message has been placed in you. And sometimes, just like what Connie and I are going through, you're in one of those times where you just feel broken, like your pot got smashed. But I fully know that when I leave tonight and I get on that plane and I land in Georgia tomorrow morning and I go hang out with my brother-in-law and all of his kids and go to that service, I know somehow He's going to take a broken clay pot and he's going to pour out some fragrance and some light and God's going to do something with it. That's what he's going to do because that's what he does. That gospel's going to go forth. He he could have protected the Apostle Paul, but did he? No way on this earth you see we are just simply the ones that contain the power we are not the power itself i don't know whether you even care about such things but when you're driving around the city and you're looking at power lines and they crisscross a lot of stuff is underground but for those of us that are older you remember when everything was above ground I remember the first time I saw the transmission lines coming from, from Boulder Dam, Hoover Dam on Lake Mead. You're looking up there. There's three quarters of a million volts flowing through those lines. And as they step down, you finally end down to 69,000 volts and eventually down to 13,000 plus volts. And then finally you get down to 110 volts in your house after it gets transformed down in voltage. But there's an interesting thing about all of that power transmission. The thing that allows it to go from place to place to place is the clay pots that are the insulators that hold the lines that allow the power to go through. You take those clay pots out of there, those lines touch that tower, that power is going to ground and it's dead. You are those clay pots. You hold the same power that put the stars in the sky. You hold the same power by the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that's always caused blind men to see and lame men to walk is being transmitted through you. You have a message and you have a master, but you have to be courageous. You, you play a part in all of this. It says we're we're pressed on every side and yet not crushed. The, the word there is hard pressed. It's narrowly confined, hemmed in. There's nowhere to go. You can't get away from it. You are in the midst of that trial and there is no changing it. Hard pressed, but not crushed. In other words, not destroyed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We we may not know which way to turn, but we know who turns every which way, amen? I don't always know what God wants for me, but I know he wants something. And he's able to communicate it. I have to be courageous with that information. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Paul saying, "Look, I'm going through some tough times. My body has been beat to a pulp. This dude's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been beaten. He's been flogged. He's been left for dead. He's picking up snakes and vipers. The, the dude has a bad go of it for a long time. You could say it's like, man, the, the guy's cursed. Oh no, he's just really blessed." Because God counted him worthy to go through all of those things because he was carrying the power of God, the gospel, the good news. People could look at Paul. Aren't you the dude that used to kill Christians? Uh Uh-huh. Didn't I see you on the road to Damascus? Yep. Weren't you shouting and breathing threats and murders against the same people that you now claim to associate with? Uh-huh. Now we're going to kill you, dude. You're like psycho. And Paul's going, yep, out of my mind for the sake of Christ. Amen? That's what he's going to say. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. You know what? Here's the truth. You're all going to croak. Every one of you in this room, lest the Lord comes through his church and raptures us all home all at once... You're going to die. That's true. But here's the good news you're going to live. So, in that sense, you're already dead. You're already dead. Paul could say, Look, I'm already dead. I mean, what can you do to me? I'm already dead. I don't count my life dear. I don't hang on to these things because I know that I'm actually already dead. But the moment I actually really die, I'm free. We're going to see that in chapter 5. He's going, man, I'm moving out of my tent and into my mansion. So he wandered around like, okay, so kill me. That's a really bad deal. Again, I'm not saying that you, if we find you've got a death wish, we have to deal with that. But you, you have to conclude that what, from what Paul's saying here, he already saw himself as dead. Literally, I'm already a dead man. So what's the worst that can happen? I go home to Jesus sooner rather than later. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah, it's terrible for those of us who are left. And I'm not dismissing anyone, including my own uh, pain. But what I am saying is, when you look at it from that perspective, you think about life differently. You start to really live because there's really nothing this world can do to you. What can the world do to you? What's the worst thing the world can do? Kill you, right? If I were to to do a survey question, we do an online poll, and I ask, what's the worst thing that can ever happen to you? I guarantee you 90% are going to say death. Some people will say, I lose my money or they come up with some other dumb thing, but it's death. It's death. It's death. Most of us, that's why we universally fear death, amen? People without Jesus, that's why they do anything they can to hang on to life. And Paul's saying, look, I already see myself as dead, so there's nothing that you can do to me that I don't already anticipate happening anyway, so it just doesn't matter to me. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Listen very carefully to what he's saying. He's saying eternal life is already yours, and it should be manifested in the life that you live right now in the flesh. We should be so unafraid of anything this world can do to us that people look at our lives and go, wow, is, you really believe in God, don't you? Because the things of this world don't hold the, the allure that they do for everybody else. The life that you live, you live for Christ. You actually live for Christ. So then death is working in us. But life in you who are hearing this message, we have to be courageous. He, he was knocked down, but he was never knocked out. He, in that sense, he took a beating, but he was never beaten in that sense. He's saying, look, if you kill me, I win. If you take my life, I've gained it. That's why he writes those things to the church at Philippi. It's like, okay, that's terrible. I'm going home to be with Jesus. Now, again, I don't think Paul actually had a death wish. I just think he was so resolute in understanding the truth that he lived his life in such a way that everything he did was governed by the fact, I'm already dead. I'm going to pray, I'm going to seek the Lord, I'm going to ask for wisdom. But you know, this terrible experience I'm going to have in Ephesus, it's not the end. This distressed state that I'm going to be in Corinth, it's not the end. This perplexed way that I I keep going, when you look at the life of Paul in Antioch of Poseidon, he's persecuted. In Iconium, his his own Jewish family just lays waste to him. In Thessalonica, people are responding to the gospel, but they falsely accuse him. He's going to go to prison in Jerusalem, Philippi, Caesarea, Rome, back to Rome, back to Jerusalem, back to Rome. He's just like, whatever. He's standing in the theater in Caesarea for two and a half years. What do you want to know? I'm not changing my story. I believe Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's what he says. And they're all going, you're nuts. Well, I believe it anyway. He eventually loses his life. Do you have that kind of courage? You see, Paul's secret was he actually was always experiencing death in, in a strange way. Bearing about the body of the dying Lord Jesus. He lived at Calvary himself. He just said, look, I'm going to live at the cross. I'm already crucified. I'm already dead. I, I don't have a death wish. I, I believe that, yes, you can kill me. But I'm an Acts 20:24 20, guy. I, I don't let anything move me. So I, I'm not going to get pushed to the side. Let me tell you about the new life that I have in Christ. Can you imagine how that tweaked Caesar, Nero? As as Paul's standing before Caesar, Nero with these scars and welts as they pull down his tunic, and Nero sees he's already been beaten nearly to death numerous times, and and Paul's sitting there saying, what can you do to me? You take my life, I'm going to see Jesus. I'm ready to go. But I'm going to tell you about where I'm going. I'm going to tell you about how I'm getting there. I'm going to tell you the way I live my life because of that. I'm going to share with you the gospel. I'm not giving in to your threats. He had the unlimited resources of heaven at his disposal. His life was fixed on a principle that he knew at any moment he could be home he could see Jesus face to face and we'll see this in chapter 5. And actually the only explanation for Paul's life was Jesus. He wasn't after knowledge like the Greeks. He wasn't after glory like the Romans. He was willing to die for Christ. And he lived as a dead man. So that death works in those of us who love the Lord. But it's life to those who need to know the truth. It's interesting to me that just as happened to Jesus in Gethsemane. As Jesus put himself between those that were going to arrest him and the disciples, he said, no, take me. You know, the Apostle Paul ends up doing the same thing. He says, look, I'm going to tell you about the truth. Just just let Timothy go. You want to kill somebody, kill me. The gospel continued to spread. Paul would actually lose his life. Can you imagine the glories of heaven when he got there? And so let's be clay pots of courage, just like the apostle Paul. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. Pastors are going to come up if you need prayer. Maybe you don't know Jesus yet. There's going to be a whole group of guys up here, some ladies that can pray with you that gospel message. If you don't know Jesus, I'm here to tell you he is the way and the truth and the life and no one gets to the Father but by him. And so respond to that good news tonight. Come and pray and receive Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for the courage that is instilled in us by the good news of the gospel. We pray that we just live lives that are so well-pleasing to you that you'd see those things that are going on in our lives and you would have a big smile on your face. We can't wait to get home. We look forward to that day when you call us out. And at the same time, Lord, I pray for anybody who's struggling tonight their life is is filled with something that's unbearable a weight that seems too heavy would you give us strength give them strength lord undergird them with the wings of an eagle lord surround them with angels or would you protect us from the attacks of the enemy And, and god we we recognize if you are not for us then everything is against us but if everything is against us and you are for us then we win and we believe that lord and so there isn't any condemnation to us who are in Christ Jesus. or we know we're going to see heaven one day. We thank you for that truth. Pray that you'd bless us, Lord, as we leave this place tonight. Fill us with your spirit. Send us out with the gospel. In Jesus' name, Amen.